Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here with John Vecchioni, and we are pleased to be joined by one of our litigation colleagues here at NCLA, uh, Shang Lee. Welcome to Administrative Static. Thank you, Mark. We have invited Shang to join us. We've been talking on the program uh, at least a couple of times about this lawsuit that NCLA has filed on behalf of uh, the Cato Institute uh, against President Biden's uh, loan cancellation program. And Shang has been uh, the uh, the person who's taken the laboring oar on on putting a lot of those uh, briefing materials and, and motions together. And you filed another one uh, this week, uh, uh, Shang. What uh, what was in what was the point of this week's uh, filing with the District Court of Kansas? And what are you trying to uh, what is NCLA trying to accomplish here? So we filed a motion in the District Court uh, to th- this week, asking the District Court to rule on Cato's motion for preliminary injunction, which has been fully briefed, has been pending before the district court for nearly a month now. Um, And we did this uh, because we want a quick ruling on the preliminary injunction motion so that uh, we can, uh, you know, if we win on that, uh, the government will appeal to the Tenth Circuit. And at that point, we think the government would likely uh, uh, seek cert with the Supreme Court and get the case consolidated with uh, the Nebraska case that's pending before the Supreme Court. So there's a lot there. Let's uh, let's unpack that. Uh, for, so first of all, I know the government uh, had filed earlier in the month, and and I was was a bit surprised. I don't know if you were. I was a bit surprised that the government did not sort of jump on the opportunity to ask for a stay in the case. The judge last month in the in the hearing had seemed to be uh, telephonic hearing. It seemed to be leaning toward the idea of a stay, I thought the government might jump on that with both feet and say, yes, yes, please, please, let's have a stay in the case. Uh, But instead, the government had agreed with us that there didn't seem to be a justification uh, for a stay. Why do you think the government is opposed to a stay? And and that seemed like a good development uh, to me. What do you think about that? Well, right. So, so about as you mentioned a month ago, the court was seemed very interested in staying the case in light of the other uh, cases that are a little more advanced, uh, particularly the, tech, the case in Texas. And the government on that phone call was, was you know, seemed to have agreed with the court that a stay was proper, but then uh, filed a motion instead and said, hey, uh, district judge, you should rule on, uh, on standing. I think the government wants um, a quick ruling on standing, perhaps for the same reason we do. And we, we outlined this uh, argument in our brief, and it goes something like, look, if the Supreme Court is going to rule on, um, you know, issue a final decision of some sort uh, in the Nebraska case and perhaps uh, in the Texas case or the Brown case in Texas. Uh, ideally, that would be, you know, one way or another, a final ruling on whether this loan cancellation program is lawful or not. We always think it's not lawful. But if the plaintiffs in that Nebraska case and in the Brown case were found ultimately 
not to have standing, then the Supreme Court would not reach the merits and can't really rule on the constitutionality of the cancellation program. And if our case were still alive in Kansas District Court at that point, it, it puts a, a, a wrinkle in the government's plan because the government would, you know, ideally, I think the government's in the same position we are in the sense that it wants to know whether it can lawfully carry out its program. We disagree on whether the program is lawful, but but that certainty is benefits both parties. And if our right. case, because there would be a real ending, problem yeah. if the if the Supreme Court were to rule that there wasn't any standing in the Nebraska case or uh, and in the Texas case, if it winds up hearing both of them, uh, then there would be a little bit of a race. I mean, the government might try to, to race to get as many of the uh, of the applications approved and, and processed uh, before we could race to the courthouse to try to get uh, a, a, you know, a stay in place or an injunction in place or a TRO or something uh, so that our court could rule on the merits because we think that we do have standing. So it, it, it would really yeah, yeah. complicate matters. And, and you think maybe the government wants to avoid that complication as well? I, I think so. And one uh, one reason I think that might be the case is because the government in the Brown case out of the Fifth Circuit has uh, petitioned for the Supreme Court to combine that case with the Nebraska case. So the government seems to have be interested in combining all the sort of live or potentially uh, all the cases maybe it's concerned about about standing being a real thing into a single into a single case. So that can be some. Uh, some final resolution, uh, you know, this year in 2023. And, and as you mentioned, if, in, if, if the Supreme Court does come out and say um, Brown and the states do not have standing, it puts Cato in a very precarious position because uh, news reports indicate that the government has already approved something like 16 million uh, loan cancellation applicants. And you know, the, 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 so they're ready to go, and, and the government's brief even said this. They're ready and willing to um, cancel these 16 million loans as soon as the court permits them. And obviously, the government's a party in the cases before the, in the case before the Supreme Court, and they'll know before Cato does what happens in that case. And, you know, it might take Cato hours to learn, and how, I, I'm not sure how many people's loans could be canceled in that, those hours, um, but certainly I, we think quite a lot because this is all electronic. And, and as a result, the government could um, kind of basically affect the fate accompli and, and get half or, you know, a substantial part of uh, outstanding loans canceled before Cato really has a chance to litigate its standing and the merits of its preliminary injunction motion. Right. So even if Judge Krauss were to agree with us that we have standing and were to agree with us on the merits, it might just be overtaken by events if, if there isn't a, a stay in place. Uh, or, or I, I shouldn't use stay here because that's that's inexact. Unless there were an injunction in place, or if there was something to 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 keep the government from going forward uh, once the Supreme Court had ruled on the other cases. Yeah, that's right. And and you know this is a loan cancellation case, and I, I guess there's there's theoretical ways to unwind cancellations, but it's very complicated, and I'm not sure you'll get you know you never get 100 percent. So I think the best way, you know, to to stop this is to get an injunction to prevent even a single, you know, single loan cancellation uh, that that's you know out of bounds of the Constitution to take place. Because otherwise, um, we'll be in a very messy environment. Interestingly, there were news reports this week that the government had accidentally told some people that their loans were canceled and that they were going to have to 
uh, they were in the process of alerting those folks that that was a mistake and that they they weren't actually canceled, uh, which I thought was interesting because, uh, you know, if the government can do that now because of a mistake it makes, I don't know why it couldn't do it later uh, if the if the Supreme Court were to decide that, uh, you know, that there was no legal leg for the government to stand on doing it, you know, so it wasn't accidental. It was on purpose, but it was unlawful. Well, that, that would seem to be a stronger basis yeah. for unwinding it. That, that's, that's true. And I think if, uh, uh, so there may be some, some retrospective relief that's possible there. Uh, obviously it would have to still come uh, quickly after, you know, the government has to own up to its unlawful cancellation fairly quickly before anyone can really, you know, rely on that cancellation, put down a mortgage or something like that. Uh, you know, you don't want you want as few people relying on uh, the unlawful act as possible before you you remedy it. Well, and I've said this on the program before, but if you're listening and you have a student loan, don't believe the government that this loan is going to be canceled because they do not have the legal authority to do it. Eventually, I believe the Supreme Court will strike this down. And if you have made financial plans counting on having ten or twenty thousand dollars of your student loans canceled, you are going to be sorely disappointed. So. <laughs> Uh, That's well, right. Public service announcement to uh, to all listeners with public uh, with uh, student loans. Well, That's is there right. Anything? And to get back to oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, so just get back to to our filing here. Uh, I think it's very interesting that both we and the government are are asking the court to rule at least on Cato's standing, uh, which which we think we have a very strong argument on because. There's, there's real competitive harm uh, in, uh, against Cato's ability to recruit in the labor market if uh, the public service loan forgiveness program's incentives were eviscerated by a, a different form of cancellation that kind of edges it out. Um, right, and doesn't have requirements. Exactly. It's a better, yeah, an easier way to get your loan canceled. So why does anyone have any incentive to work for Cato or some other nonprofit? Uh, to get their loans canceled through a more, you know, a, a, an arduous 10-year process. Um, but if the court, you know, if the court listens to both parties and uh, and agrees with uh, uh, and rules on standing, we think it'll rule for us. And then we're asking the court, hey, once you reach standing, um, that means you know you have jurisdiction and, and district courts have an obligation to exercise jurisdiction unless there's some really, you know, uh, overriding interest in not doing so. And that's really rare and we don't think it exists here and so it can really should then rule on the pending motion for preliminary injunction and grant it to us for the reasons we just explained cato will be irreparably harmed if all these loans come out before cato has a chance to really uh go to court and and when that happens uh and we hope it will in the next week or two uh it'll give us an opportunity or give the government an opportunity to to appeal this uh, case and we hope to uh, get the whole thing consolidated before the supreme court uh, sometime before the new year. We only have about a minute left here, but I wanted to get your take, Shang, on uh, the fact that that these other two cases don't prevent the court from ruling on Cato's preliminary injunction motion. Why is that? Why why does the fact that these other two courts have ruled not not prevent the District of Kansas from ruling? Well, I, I think the first thing I understand is this sort of thing happens all the time. Um, and you'll have a federal program and there'll be a bunch of lawsuits filed around the country and the Supreme Court has told district courts it likes to it likes these cases to percolate up and to get and finally you know allows the Supreme Court to to make a final ruling. If you know in the interest of comedy, if one court ruling somehow stops all the other courts from ruling, then you really get one district court judge 
kind of setting the tone and setting the agenda for the whole country. And, and that's not, uh, not how things should work. Terrific. Well, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it, Ken, and we'll see you more right after this. and Vec back with you here on Administrative Static, and we have held over our colleague, uh, Shang Lee, to talk with us. Uh, Shang has been a busy guy this month uh, to talk with us about uh, another uh, set of comments uh, that NCLA filed. Uh, in this case, uh, these are comments on a proposed rule uh, for determining the, the standard for determining joint employer status uh, under the, I guess this is under the National Labor Relations uh, Act. And NCLA joined uh, with another organization, um, and uh, uh, and we've invited Chang to talk to us about that. It's the Institute for the American Worker is the other uh, organization. So tell us about, uh, and for our listeners who don't know, Shang worked at the Department of, of Labor in the last administration. So Shang, tell us what's at stake here with, with this new rule that, uh, that you filed comments on, and what is NCLA saying about this, this new rule? or this proposed rule, I should say. So this is the National Labor Relations Board's joint employer rule. And the National Labor, it, it, it affects the concept of employment under the National Labor Relations Act, which is the foundational you know, labor law that, that uh, governs labor management relations. And it creates potential liability for employers. But you first have to be an employer. And there's a concept under the law called joint employment, or uh, and if a company... Uh, can be a joint employer of employees that are that uh, ostensibly work for a second company if that first company uh, exercises sufficient control over uh, those employees, you know, in conjunction with the second employer usually. Uh, and this rule has to do with well, what is sufficient can we, can we stick control? on that for just a just a second? Because I want to make sure our listeners understand the concept. So. This means, for example, imagine that you're a worker at McDonald's. The question is, who's your boss? Is it the owner of the franchise who, who you know, pays you every every week or month? Is that is that your employer, or is it the McDonald's corporation in headquartered in Illinois? Is that your, is that your employer, or is it both of them are, are your employer? Who uh, who has control over your your working relationship? And we've built up a whole lot of contracts in this country premised on the idea that the franchisee is the employer and is the one who controls the employees and gets to make a lot of decisions free from uh, corporate control. And if we go away from that, it's going to destroy the franchise model. Uh, But it's not just that. There's also other places where this comes into effect. If you have a a contractor who has a subcontractor working uh, on site then does that is that contractor now responsible for all that subcontractees uh, terms and conditions of employment? They may be responsible for the work that they do on site if there's a defect or something, but are they responsible for the the terms and conditions of that person's uh, employment? And I think the traditional understanding or the 
or the, the common law understanding would have been no, that, that that general contractor isn't responsible, if I understand correctly, Shane. That's right. And, and uh, I think anybody who's ever had, um, you know, home renovation work might understand this, that you'll hire a contractor and the contractor has some employees, they come to your house, they do a bunch of work for you. you you're exercising some, some level of control. You tell them when they come in, uh, you know, you, you come in when I'm, you know, out at my work, don't come on on these other days. Uh, you're ex also con indirectly controlling maybe how much those employees are getting paid because you set the price or you negotiate the price with their employer, the contractor. And obviously, the higher the price, the higher they get paid. Uh, so you're exercising some degree of control, but typically we wouldn't think that you, the homeowner, is you know is their uh, employer in any sense. And and right. that's and sort of what the, the the concept of joint employment that's going on here. And but you can't fire them from working for that employer, for example. But, Precisely. You might say, hey, this guy is a lousy, you know, guy, lousy with the saw. I don't want him sawing my woodshed. Find another guy to do it. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't tell him to, you know, you wouldn't say you never can hire this guy for any other purpose. And, and so the, the Congress has, uh, has amended the National Labor Relations Act to basically say the common law definition of employment applies. And for many decades, the, the, uh, the National Labor Relations Board or the board here uh, has said under that common law conception of employment, uh, the putative second employer, the putative joint employer, has to exercise direct and immediate control over essential terms and conditions of employment. Like I can't. Uh, uh, it's not enough to say um, to, to affect one's wage by negotiating the overall contract price. You have to directly affect their wage. You have to directly affect you know, the manner in which they, they're doing their work uh, is a very, generally a very close degree of control. And in comes the National Relations Board in 2015 and, and through one of their adjudications uh, called Browning-Ferris of California, the board changed, overruled its own precedent and changed that standard to basically say indirect control and, and control that you may never, the joint employer, the putative joint employer may never have exercised, but just happens to be written down somewhere in a, in a contract. Those things, are, perhaps alone by themselves, without any immediate or direct control, can establish a joint employment relationship. And, and to give kind of an example here, um, that, that in, in that particular case, uh, a company hired a contractor to work on site, and the company manager found a couple of those contractors' employees drinking on the job and reported them. And the contractor reported um, them but didn't fire them. Wall, so. Didn't fire them, just reported them to their con to their their employer, their supervisor. And that contractor employer tested those employees for, for drug and alcohol and, and wound up firing one of them. And that was an indicia of control that, that's supposed to show joint employment according to the board in 2015, which, which would seem kind of outrageous. I, imagine if you were renovating your home and you found one of the workers drinking on the job. I think it would be very reasonable for you to say, hey, get out of here and tell your contractor you're going to have to replace, you know. I, 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 by the way, I caught Joe, you know, smoking dope or, or drinking on the job. And it would be very reasonable for the contractor to then, in the, based on the contractor's independent business judgment, to fire that person. That doesn't show a joint employment relationship. So this case went all the way up to the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit 
ruled against, refused to enforce the board's decision, and uh, and then the department, uh, sorry, the uh, the National Labor Relations Board uh, issued a, a joint employment rule that largely followed through the D.C. Circuit's uh, circuit's ruling and said, okay, we're going to look primarily at direct and immediate control, like we have been for decades. Let me clarify. Uh, we're going to say indirect control. So, oh, so sorry, the, yeah. the D.C. Circuit ruled against the Obama administration's uh, adjudication on this point. And then it was the Trump administration that put out the new rule that was consistent with the D.C. Circuit's opinion. Is that accurate? That's right. We'll call that the we'll call that the 2020 rule because that's when it came out. And, and the 2020 rule emphasized direct and immediate control is needed for joint employment and, and said indirect control may, may be like a secondary consideration, may be considered, may be relevant in some circumstances, but only when there's already direct or immediate control. You, you can't really get to joint employment based on indirect control alone, which is consistent with uh, how the board has been doing this since the 1980s. Uh, then in comes the Biden administration and the composition of the National Relations Board changed once again. And now the board is proposing a new rule. Uh, this will be maybe, it's not finalized yet, but we'll call it the proposed rule. And the proposed rule would take it back to that 2015 Browning-Ferris decision. It will get rid of the 2020 Trump rule and, and get to a position where uh, indirect control by itself, without any direct or immediate control, uh, can establish joint employment relationships. And, uh, and so that's where we are. And we, uh, uh, NCLA filed a comment against this. Uh, the primary thrust of the comment is to say, look, Congress said common law standard of employment is what matters for the purpose of the, of the uh, National, Labor, uh, National Labor Relations Act. And under the common law, you can't get to joint employment without some evidence of direct and immediate control by the employer, uh, because that's what that's how employment is defined under the common law. And could I ask a question? Why does it why does it matter? Why, if I'm a worker, does it matter to me uh, how many employers I have? Why is this an issue and why does it go back and forth? What's the fight really over? Well, for the purpose of the National Labor Relations Act, it's about how uh, unionization, really it's about how unionization efforts uh, can, uh, can take place. So can the contractor's employees be, be, for the purpose of unionization, be grouped together with the main employer's uh, employees? So if right. you think about a, a franchise can, model, can you, you might have all of the McDonald's workers nationwide at once, Got or it. do you have to go franchise by franchise? All right. It becomes clear to me now. Exactly. So if you're really pro-union, you want to define employment as broadly as possible. So every, you know, your Papa John's, your McDonald's employees, most of the time they, they work for a single guy who has a single franchise and, um, and he might only have a dozen employees. Um, but if you expand this concept of joint employment, you can maybe wrap you know, thousands of and thousands of uh, employees together and say, yeah, they actually all are jointly employed by Papa John's or jointly employed by McDonald's because McDonald's, you know, indirectly controls, uh, you know, certain aspects of the, uh, indirectly controls or influences uh, certain things by, by having, uh, you know, standard, standard, uh, uh, standard work hours or, or something like that. So we have about 30 seconds left, Shang. Tell us, tell our listeners what happens now that you've uh, filed these comments with the, uh, 
with the board? So, so the board is going to, you know, finalize a rule at some point, probably next year. And we suspect, you know, they'll, they'll, they won't, you know, pay too much attention to our comments. And if they, they do ignore our comments, however, uh, we think these comments will, will allow us to uh, file a lawsuit uh, challenging the board's rule uh, under, the, under the ground that it violates the common law. Now, you know, and, and this is a particularly interesting vehicle because the board's going to seek deference on its rule uh, under, um, under Chevron and potentially Brand X. So this creates a vehicle for us to challenge those deference doctrines. Fantastic. Well, I think that was a great explanation. I appreciate your joining us uh, on the program today and keep up all the great work you're doing for the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Thank you.